Well, good morning, church family. It is uh, good to be with you each and every Sunday, and I didn't know who was going to show up today, so thanks for coming out on a snowy Sunday morning. Um, If you have your Bible today, you can take it and open it up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be today, and um, let me just give you a little uh, warning, heads up on this, Um, especially if you have uh, younger kids in here, or maybe you'll be sensitive about some of these things. Our sermon text for today touches on some um, potentially triggering things, some difficult things, um, things that have to do with the spiritual realm, things that have to do with self-harm, things like that. So if you need to, now's a good time to take any uh, tender ears that may be in the room, take them out of the room, and um, you can kind of just use your discernment on that. But as you're opening to Acts chapter 16, I just wanted to say two quick things. Uh, The first one is that if you're new with us today, whether in person or at East or or online, we're so glad that you're here. We want to be a church that has open arms to everybody from every background, no matter what brought you in today, whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, a longtime believer, or a brand new believer, wherever you are, whatever your background, we are glad you're here, and we hope that you uh, can sense the love of Jesus. Um, If you are new with us, one thing that I want to do is just invite you uh, to join me for something. Uh, Each quarter of our year, my wife and I host a six-week group that's called Make Him Known, the group. Uh, We introduce people who are new to our church, people who are interested in UBC, looking to connect with other new families. Uh, We host this group for six weeks. It meets here on Wednesday nights, and uh, we would love to have you. So if that sounds like something that you're interested in, you can go to our website, ubcbeavercreek.com, and on the groups page, you can uh, sign up and uh, express your interest there. We would love to have you. That's for those of you who are new. Uh, For those of you who have been here for a while, I also just want to remind you of something that I mentioned for the past couple Sundays, and that is that we're in our season of nominating our next round of elders and deacons. And so church members, those of you who are members of the church, um, you will receive an email today, this afternoon, with uh, a nomination form that you can submit. And so uh, please be in prayer about that. Uh, We need you to submit that form before January 29th. Um, or excuse me, by the end of the day on January 29th, so that's next Sunday. So uh, I just ask you to be in prayer and submit those um, prayerfully as the Lord leads. Uh, So now we want to get into the book of Acts today. So this is our 37th message in our study through the book of Acts. So if you're joining us for the first time, there's a lot of backstory here that you kind of need to understand in order to kind of figure out where we are in this narrative. Um, So let me just summarize all this for you. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he is sending out his disciples to be his witnesses in the world. He says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that little outline is how the book of Acts unfolds. Chapters 2 through 7 are all about the apostles' witness in um, Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12 are about their ministry in the regions around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And then uh, at the verse chapter 13 and following are all about their, their witness out into the rest of the Gentile world. And so when you get into chapter 13, what we do is we see the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He and one of his missionary friends named Silas, or excuse me, Barnabas, they basically travel to Cyprus and then to what we would now call Asia, um, Turkey, and they preach the gospel there. Um, people believe the gospel. They come to faith in Jesus. They start gathering in little communities, and churches are started. And so that's basically Acts chapter 13 and 14. Acts chapter 15 is about this 
a really interesting debate that uh, occurred called the Jerusalem Council. Um, That decision from that council ended up affecting the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the churches. And so at the end of chapter 15, what happens with Paul is that he and Barnabas get together and they say, hey, we should go back and visit all those churches that uh, were started on our first missionary journey. So they decide they're going to go, but they can't agree on who to take with them. And so they have a disagreement. And so Barnabas goes to Cyprus and Paul goes, uh, starts out on his second missionary journey up towards what we would now call the area of Turkey. And so as we've been into chapter 16, we now are in the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey with his friend and missionary partner, Silas. And so if we can put the map up on the screen, just to kind of show you where we've gone on this journey so far. Don't you love it when I pick the the maps from the children's books? Look at that wonderful sailboat right there. Okay. Um, So the second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul and Silas started out in Antioch of Syria, just on the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. They make their way north and then west over to a city called Lystra, It's in Lystra where they meet a young man named Timothy who ends up joining them on their missions. Uh, From there, they go north and west. They they try to go into an area called Bithynia in the north to preach, but God says no. They try to go south into an area called Asia to preach, but God says no. And so they just keep traveling west and they go all the way to Troas. And once they get to Troas, they're kind of on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and they're like, uh, the Aegean Sea, I mean, and they're like, where do we go now? And in that moment, the Lord um, appears to the Apostle Paul in a dream, and there's a Macedonian man in his dream saying, come over to us. And so the Apostle Paul senses that that's the leading of the Lord, so they sail across the Aegean Sea, over onto the continent of Europe, and they end up in the city of Philippi, where we saw last week in Acts 16 that uh, Paul meets a, a woman named Lydia. She believes the gospel and her whole household is saved. And the basic principle from last week is this, is that we, we can trust God for a future yes, even when he gives us a present no. Paul said, or God said, no, don't go to Bithynia. No, don't go to Asia. Paul's like, okay, well, where do we go? And then after a couple no's, God said yes, and he took him to Philippi. And so today we're going to pick up uh, our story in the city of Philippi. We're going to work our way today from verses 16 through 40, and we got to move quick uh, today, so just know I'm going to be talking fast. Uh, We're going to make several observations along the way, end with some application that all ties into the big idea of this passage. And the big idea from this passage of Scripture is this. It's that sometimes God allows our suffering in order to bring others to salvation. Sometimes God allows our suffering in order to bring others to salvation. So maybe you're here today and you're going through a tough time. Maybe you're following Jesus. You're, th- you're obeying him the best you can, and yet hardship keeps coming into your life. And it's discouraging to you, and you wonder what's God doing. Maybe today's passage will speak to you because maybe the Lord wants to use the circumstances around your suffering to bring someone to Christ. So let's start in verse 16 and see how this becomes clear in our passage. So verse 16 says this, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So uh, they were going to the place of prayer. This is not a synagogue in the city of Philippi or anything like that. This is just a meeting place down by a river outside the city gates of Philippi. We Read about this last uh, Sunday, and that's where Lydia and her family, her household was saved. They were baptized there down at this uh, 
place of prayer by the river. And so they go, and this time the Apostle Paul and Silas, they meet a different woman. This time it's, it's a girl. It's a girl who is uh, enslaved. She's not just enslaved to men, but you can see here that she's also enslaved to the devil. Our, st- our text says that she um, had a spirit of divination. And what that means is that she was oppressed by an evil spirit. And that evil spirit um, enabled her to engage in fortune telling, predicting someone's future and uh, people paying to have their future told to them, right? So, you know, it's interesting to me because when it comes to fortune telling and things like this, it's interesting that this has been going on all the way from the Bible times till now. Like when I grew up as a kid in the 80s, you know what I remember? I remember TV commercials with the 1-800-PSYCHIC hotline number, right? Maybe some of you guys will remember that. That was, uh, you know, kind of a thing. Now, even today, this continues. In my neighborhood where I live right now, uh, up until a couple years ago, there was a house in our neighborhood that had a big sign on their front that just said, you know, you come here and we'll read tarot cards and um, we do crystal ball reading and, and you, you know, they advertise to being able to help people understand their future. And it's, sh- I'll just be honest, it shocks me that people still pay for things like this, right? I, it's sad to me actually, because here's, here's what it reveals about human beings. People are desperate for security about their future. People are desperate. They will pay. They'll make great sacrifice in order to do that. They're anxious about it. They want to have a sense of security about where things are going for their future. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I'm glad my future is secure. I am thankful to know whose hands I'm in and he holds the future. So here's the thing, though, about the devil and the enemy. He will be happy to take advantage of insecure people. And he wants to work through others who practice divination in order to keep people trapped in their fear, in order to keep them looking anywhere for security about their future, anywhere other than Jesus. And that's the way the enemy wants to work. So fortune telling and things of that nature, guys, I want you to hear me. They're not just hokey. They're not just weird. They're wicked. And you don't need to dabble in that kind of stuff. You don't need to mess around with it. The apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthian church and he would say this, We don't want to be unaware of the devil's schemes, right? The devil has schemes. We don't want to be aware of them. The scripture helps open our eyes to it. And what do we see here? This girl was enslaved by both man and the devil, and she was engaged in this practice of divination, fortune telling. Verse 17 says says this, and she followed Paul around and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, She followed Paul saying this over and over again. But here's the thing. When you read these words, you know what's interesting about these words? They're true, right? It's not like she's oppressed by a devil and she's, you know, repeating some lies, right? She's proclaiming what is true. Our God is indeed the most high God. Paul, Timothy, and Silas were indeed uh, his servants. Yes, there is indeed a way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the words that this demonically influenced girl was saying were true words which should immediately put some kind of put our radar up because we've got to understand that just intellectually agreeing with the truth, even verbally affirming the truth, that is not automatically an indicator that people are saved. Demons can do that. Demonically influenced people can do that. See, here's the thing. Here's the truth from scripture. Demons understand the truth about Jesus. They understand who Jesus is. They know what's coming, what doom is in their future. But they could essentially pass a Bible test, right? They could affirm a doctrinal statement. 
They, they, could, they could proclaim to you, yes, these things are true. Here's the thing, though. It doesn't change the way they live. It doesn't change their heart. Right? They may agree, have to agree with what is intellectually too, true and even be able to influence it being said out loud, but it doesn't mean they have to love it. It doesn't mean they care about organizing their lives around it. It doesn't mean they're interested in serving Jesus, changing their behavior. Just because we have intellectual agreement doesn't mean we have any more faith than a demon. And that is a big deal. It's why James would later write these words in his New Testament letter where James says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Intellectual understanding, verbal affirmation alone are not necessarily indicative of true salvation. Those who are truly saved, yes, they will intellectually believe rightly about Jesus. Yes, they will uh, confess him with their mouth as Lord. But you know what? Their hearts will be drawn to him and their lives will be drawn to submit to him and serve him. It'll be shown in their actions. So this demon-influencing girl had the right understanding and the right words. Let's see what happens next. Verse 18 says, she kept doing this for many days, right? Following the apostle Paul around. And it says this, so Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what we see here in the life of the apostle Paul is the same thing that we saw in the life and ministry of Jesus. We've seen it in the ministry of the apostles. And it's this, our Lord Jesus has authority over the devil and demons, And because he does, deliverance from the powers and the works of the enemy, it's possible under the authority of Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? People can be delivered? Man, it can happen, right? There's a, Rachel and I have a friend um, who was uh, not raised in a Christian home. She was raised in, actually in the Latter-day Saints church, but as she got older, she kind of started getting involved in Uh, various forms of Wicca and and witchcraft. And at times in her life, she would have actually referred to herself as a witch. Well, eventually, uh, she got saved. She was working down at uh, a bookstore down by the Dayton Mall. Some Christians came in. Um, She pulled these Christians aside and said, you know what? Um, I want you to tell me in one minute or less what you believe about your faith. And she kind of put them on the test like that. But these Christians were equipped and ready, and they answered her question, and they told her, and it got her eyes open to say, okay, I want to hear a little bit more about what these people have to say. Long story short, this girl ended up getting saved. You know what she would say, though, before she, would say, stay, before she was saved? She would come to our Bible studies. She would come to these things, and she would comment, very interested in spiritual things, and she would say things like this. She would say, well, you know, you know Satan's just as powerful as God. She used to say that all the time. She had a misunderstanding. And so she would say that pretty regularly until she got saved. And she understood what? She understood that deliverance from the power of Satan is uh, available, it's possible under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened to our friend. That's exactly what happened to the slave girl in our text. She was delivered under the authority of Jesus. Now, see what happens in verse 19. Verse 19 says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, Right? She's not going to be doing this fortune-telling stuff anymore. They're not going to be making money off her. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disrupting our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to be beaten with rods. So here we go. Wherever the Apostle Paul goes, he preaches the gospel. Mighty works are done in his name, in Jesus' name. And uh, the crowds sometimes are initially interested in what they're doing, but eventually they also become hostile. And we've seen this all through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in his first journey and now in his second journey. And here we are. It's happening again. They, they start to beat him, right? There's a public uh, corporal punishment going on here. Look at verse 23. And it says that when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, they put them, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So just to get a picture of this in your mind, Roman prisons were a little different than our modern day, day jails or prisons. We think of these big complexes and big facilities. You know, Roman prisons were a little smaller, um, much smaller really for the most part. And there were kind of the outer uh, portion and then the inner portion of prisons. The outer portion um, sometimes had jail cells. Sometimes they had windows. You could talk to people on the outside. You know, things could be dropped off and brought to you. The inner prison was different. You were really um, no access to the outside world. It was dark. It was damp. It was cold. Um, and so the only people around you were the other people inside the, the inner portion of the prison. And that's where Paul and Silas are being held. Their feet are in stocks. And I, you know, I think that's interesting to me. You think about how much trouble they're in here and reflect on what did we learn last week? What we learned last week is that this is the same place where the Lord was saying, yep, I want you to go there. See, sometimes God will say yes. It doesn't mean it's going to be an easy yes. Sometimes you can be following the Lord wholeheartedly and yet you can find yourself in a, a situation where you are experiencing suffering all along the way. And that's exactly what's happening to Paul and Silas. How are they going to respond? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're doing what? They're praying, they're singing hymns to God. In the middle of this dark, cold, uh, inner prison cell where their feet are locked in stocks. Right? And they're singing. You ever, um, have you ever had the experience of seeing somebody sing through their suffering. Several years ago, um, a friend of mine um, was, had serious lung cancer and eventually passed away from lung cancer. But when she was in the hospital um, on her decline, uh, she asked me to come visit and I went to visit her and, you know, she could hardly breathe, but she asked me to put on some worship music on my phone and we just sat in that hospital room and just sang worship songs together. I remember friends of mine who, when they, they lost a baby years ago, and they were gathered together with the church, and I remember seeing the pain in their face, but watching the, the words of the old praise song, you give and take away, you give and take away, Lord, blessed be your name. You ever heard somebody sing through their suffering? You ever seen anybody praise God through their pain? It's powerful. It's powerful not just to us as believers. It's powerful also to the watching outside world. That's what's going on with Paul and Silas here. It says that they were singing and praying. And verse 25 says, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
See, suffering gives us a unique platform for witnessing to the outside world. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second when we get to our application, but for now, just keep that in mind. It says in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, listen, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You know, this, here's the situation. This jailer had been charged, keep these guys safe. Keep them secure here in the prison. And he knew that if he didn't follow that command, his life was going to be taken from him. And so he assumed after that earthquake that all these men had just left. So he drew his sword, and he was about to take his own life. Now, it would be easy to kind of just kind of rush through this, but there aren't, there aren't many passages of Scripture that talk directly about issues pertaining to self-harm, to suicide, and those types of things. So I want to just take a couple minutes and just talk about this for just a second. I know, and I have watched friends, people in my life, who, in their minds, things have become so dark that they have lost all hope that the darkness will ever lift. Things have become so agonizing to them in their minds that they believe that the only way out is to take their own life. We all probably know people who have either done that or have attempted to do that. When I was growing up, my childhood pastor pulled his car over on the side of the road and killed himself. This can happen. It can happen to people who know the Lord. It can happen to people who don't know the Lord. Life can take its toll. And so I just want to use this little portion of Scripture to just speak to any of you who are here today. And you know what? Suicidal ideation has been a thing that you've wrestled with. If you're in that place today, I just want to say to you that my, my prayer for you is the same as the Apostle Paul's plea to the Philippian jailer. Do not harm yourself for we are still here. We're here. The people of God who know you and love you, the people of God who know Jesus and love Jesus, we're here. And if you're hurting in that way, talk to us. We are here. We want to help you. We want to help bring you out of the pit of despair that you find yourself in. So do yourself no harm. Reach out. The jailer was about to take his own life, but God in his sovereignty brought the Apostle Paul right into his life in that suicidal moment. God had a good reason for having Paul in that jail. You understand? He had a good reason. Look at the good reason. We see it in verse 29. Verse 29 says, And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You ever had anybody ask you that question? What must I do to be saved? I've had it happen a few times in my life. It's amazing when the question gets asked. I remember, uh, I remember this one time when I was a youth pastor. Uh, there was a girl who came up to me after one of our youth events, and she was like, uh, Jason, um, what do I have to do to, to become a Christian? 
and uh, you know, really encouraged and started talking with her like, hey, what, uh, what made you ask this question today? And she was like, well, the guy I really likes in your youth group, and he says he won't date me unless I'm a Christian. <laughs> so, uh, and so we had some things to talk about, you know what I mean? Uh, and we did talk about them. And, um, you know, the Lord brings those opportunities. Uh, there's another time where I remember, you know, some, a woman who uh, was dying in the hospital. And she um, sent a message to some friends and said, hey, can you send Jason over? She said, um, I'm a, I'm a, I know I'm going to die. I'm afraid, but I want to be saved. How do I do it? <laughs> right? And here it is. What must I do to be saved? Right? It's one of the, it's obviously one of the most important questions that anybody can ever ask, right? And it's exactly what the jailer asks the Apostle Paul. And praise God, there's an answer for that question, right? Verse 31 says, Paul said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, right? That's the good news of the gospel. Believe and you'll be saved. You don't have to do a bunch of religious works. You, you don't have to live life wondering if your good works outweigh your bad works. You know, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And then Paul says, you and your household. That doesn't mean that when the jailer got saved, like all of his kids or whatever are saved by osmosis or something. What it means is that, hey, Philippian jailer, this good news that you can be saved by believing in Jesus, it's not just available to you, it's available to your family. It's available to your household. And so the jailer takes Paul and Silas to his family so he can preach the gospel to them. Verse 32 says that, that when they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night, he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. So he brought them into his house and set up food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God, right? And so this is the order. This is the progression of things. Somebody is interested in what's, what it means to be saved. Someone tells them what it means to be saved. They believe, then they're baptized. That's the process. Hearing the gospel, believing, then baptism. That's why, as Scott mentioned earlier, we don't practice infant baptism. We practice believer's baptism because that's the biblical norm. The biblical practice is that there's no such thing as an unbeliever's baptism, right? This believer's baptism. And so I hope that you've had a believer's baptism. It's what we saw in Lydia's household last week. We see it in the jailer's household this week. Praise God that he saved this jailer and his family. Pick up in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police saying, um, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And you'd think this would be good news to the Apostle Paul and Silas, you know, like you'd think they'd be like, yeah, let's roll, you know, and they would just take off. Well, this is what I love about the Apostle Paul. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, then they've thrown us into prison. And now do they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And I love this about the Apostle Paul, right? He is all about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, Right? He, is, he understands God had him there in, a, in that prison cell for a reason. He also said, hey, look, we're not just going to act like injustice in the world is fine. Right? As Christians, we don't just have to look around and see when we're mistreated or other people or the church is mistreated. And we don't just have to say, eh, you know, it's okay, it's fine. No, God sees it. Our God is a God of justice. He vindicates. He makes things right. So we see that biblical understanding can put together God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So let's see how this whole situation wraps up in Philippi. Verse 38 says, but 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now they're being nice, you know. So, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed, right? And so this is the end of their ministry in Philippi. God said yes. God had a good reason for them to be there. He wanted to save Lydia and her household. He wanted to deliver the demonically oppressed girl. He wanted the jailer and his household to come to faith. So God had a plan for them to be there. And at the same time, God allowed suffering to occur as part of that plan. So you see the big idea of this passage? Sometimes God allows suffering in order to bring others to salvation. So what are our takeaways for us? Two takeaways for us. Here's the first one. If you've never done so, Today, believe, and as soon as you can, be baptized. Believe and be baptized. The jailer heard the word of the gospel and believed. You've now heard the the word of the gospel. Have you believed in Jesus? After the jailer believed, he and his household were baptized. Have you been baptized? Right? The Lord may be calling some of you to cross the line of faith today. The Lord can use all sorts of circumstances to get you there. He may use the very circumstances that you're in today. If the darkness is in your mind so deeply that you have thought about taking your own life, the Lord Jesus may want to just come to you now and remind you that he has, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ has come, the Lord has come, so that you can have life and have it to the full. So you may really connect with the Philippian jailer who was on the verge of taking his own life. Some of you may be so wrapped up in the bondage of sin, you may more relate with the slave girl. You've been so caught up in some sort of bondage in your life. And this message that God can set you free from bondage, it's resounding with your heart. If you struggle with alcoholism, the Lord Jesus can set you free. If you are in the bondage of unforgiveness, the Lord can set you free. If you are in the bondage of substance abuse, the Lord can set you free. If you're in the bondage of pornography, the Lord can set you free. If you're in the bondage of materialism, the Lord can set you free. You're in the bondage of an eating disorder, the Lord can set you free. You're in any sort of bondage of sin whatsoever, our Lord Jesus can set you free. Maybe he has you here today because he wants to set you free. Maybe you relate to this call to salvation by people in the story. Maybe, maybe your story is not even anywhere near as dramatic as a Philippian jailer on the verge of suicide or uh, somebody trapped in bondage. Maybe you relate more with like the households of the jailer where somebody in your family came to faith and now they've told you about it. You've seen the change in their life and you're like, hey, I've seen my family member. They're changed. They're different. I want what they have. The Lord can do that too. However he may be stirring in your heart, if you have never crossed the line of faith where you said, okay, Lord, today I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place for my sins. You raised him up three days later from the grave. And just like you gave life to new life to Jesus, I want you to give new life to me. If you've never crossed that line of faith, let today be the day of your salvation. And as soon as you can afterwards, get baptized. We're doing another baptism Sunday on like in two Sundays from now, February 5th or the first Sunday in February. If you know you need to be baptized on that Sunday, I hope that you'll take the time to fill out a connection card today in the back of the seat in front of you, write your name on it, check the little box that says I'm interested in baptism. We'll follow up with you. If you're listening online, you can go to our next step page on our website and uh, follow the, the links towards baptism. We would love to work with you to see you be baptized.
That's the first takeaway. Believe and be baptized. Second takeaway, if you are a believer, here's the big point. God's purpose for your suffering may be to bring others to salvation. God uses our suffering sometimes to bring others to salvation. It's not impossible for the Lord to use suffering to, be, to bring people to salvation. If that's hard for you to understand, you don't really have to look any further than the cross of Christ. The suffering of Jesus made the way of salvation for the world. So, do you follow Jesus? Suffering's going to come your way. Your circumstances may look different than Paul and Silas. You may have never been beaten or imprisoned or that type of thing. But hardship will come your way. And here's the sobering truth about suffering. Suffering gives believers a unique platform for witness to the watching world. It's not a platform that any of us would want. Nobody's like signing up for that one. Who wants to suffer so that other people get saved, right? None of us are quickly writing our name down for that. Yet it's part of what God uses. When we walk with a loved one through dementia, when we suffer through cancer and chemo, when we grieve the loss of a child, when we love somebody who's battling addiction, when we learn to live as a widow or a widower, when we have to deal with the unfaithfulness of our spouse or abuse has entered into our life, when we've walked through any type of hardship and yet walking through it, you can still sing in your suffering and you can still praise God in your pain. You know what that is? That is a powerful witness to the watching world. They are going to want to know what you have. The, and so, church family, what's, what's the call for us? Oh, suffering is hard. There's nothing easy about it. I'm not trying to diminish anybody's suffering. But because God is sovereign and accomplishing his purposes, when we suffer, we can know that it's never pointless. It's never meaningless suffering. God is working something out. And he may just be working to bring an unbeliever to faith through you. So, in the moments when it may seem impossible to suffer and walk with God faithfully through it, the Lord will give you the grace you need in the moment to suffer well. Because your suffering, suffering can give a witness to the watching world. God's purpose for your suffering may be to bring others to salvation. Trust Him. Trust Him. Lord, we stop for a moment now and we say thank you again for the principles that come out so clearly in your word and through the life of people like Paul and Silas. And now, Lord, I do pray for anyone here today who may be asking the question, what do I need to do to be saved? I pray that today they would receive that simple answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would be saved. Lord, all of us who have been saved, we thank you that you brought us, every one of us, to a point where we believe the gospel. And so, Lord, if there are people here who haven't yet crossed that line of faith, I pray that today would be the day that they choose to repent of their sin, believe in Jesus, and receive the forgiveness of sin and the power of Holy, this Holy Spirit into their life. And for those of us who have followed you, Lord, when suffering comes our way, I pray, O oh God, that we would trust you for the grace to remain faithful in those moments. And Lord, maybe for anyone who's 
really going through some sort of difficulty now. They're following you, yet suffering keeps coming. Would you encourage their hearts today, knowing that their suffering is never meaningless, and that perhaps you want to use their worship in the hardship, their praise through the pain, to bring somebody from the watching world into a relationship with yourself. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.